0: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, editor-at-large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. We often talk about the joy and power of reading, but how do we get there? How do children actually learn how to read, to recognize words and make sense of them on a page? Today, I'll talk with Dr. Julia B. Lindsay about the science of reading and how she recommends putting it into practice. Dr. Lindsay is a leading expert on foundational skills and early reading and the author of a new book for educators, Reading Above the Fray reliable research-based routines for developing decoding skills. A former kindergarten and first grade teacher, Dr. Lindsay works with teachers, district personnel, and curriculum developers to translate reading research into practice and cultivate a lifelong love of reading among students. Here is Dr. Julia B. Lindsay. Hi, Dr. Lindsay. Welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me on.
0: We're delighted to have you talk about your new book. Please tell us about Reading Above the
1: Fray. I'd love to tell you about Reading Above the Fray. It's a book all about how to teach children how to read words. The book is really designed for teachers, but anybody can read it and learn a little bit more about how people learn to read words. In the book, I talk about how we've learned from research, how words really work for us in our brain and how we discern what all of these spelling patterns really mean and all of the ingredients that go into figuring out how to go from a toddler who doesn't know how to read words at all to that second grader who's reading many, many words. And in the book, I also talk about the instructional moves and teaching techniques that we know from research are the most supportive of helping children go all the way from a pre reader to a child who can read multisyllabic big words to take them on that journey to proficiency. So, the book is really all about how do we read words and how do we teach children how to read words too?
0: Okay, so what is meant by reading words as opposed to reading books or reading articles?
1: Awesome question reading above the fray is probably an interesting title to folks, unless they've been seeing some of the reporting and conversations recently on Twitter and in the media about reading instruction. And so what I mean by above the fray is that the book is really grounded in research and really practical as a way to give teachers a guide to getting through all of the noise in the media about how we teach reading. And most of the noise that's out there right now is specifically about how do we teach children what's called foundational skills, which are the building blocks of learning how to read and specifically learning how to read words. So being able to look at the letters C-A-T and read the word cat. And that doesn't maybe sound like it would be a controversial topic to a lot of folks who aren't educators, but it's actually been extremely controversial for decades. And there's been lots of conversations and arguments about how best To take a child from a space where they don't know anything about letters to a space where they can recognize that word. And then, of course, the other side of that is comprehension. So going from just recognizing words to comprehending words and understanding them. So when I'm talking in in reading about Above the Fray, it's mostly about how do we get children to that space where they can read individual words and also a little bit about how we support their comprehension of language along the way. But it's mostly about recognizing words. And we know that there's a whole lot else that goes into reading books and understanding books that teachers are also needing to attend to.
0: Foundational skills includes phonics. True. Correct. Okay. (laughs) So as you infer here, phonics, foundational skills have not been in the vanguard in recent decades. When I was a kid, I learned phonics. I think it served me well but I don't have thrilling memories of it. (laughs) How do we make this practice joyful?
1: I love that question. There's this big misconception in the world that phonics is super, super boring, probably because most of us either can remember or have seen videos of children looking at a board and seeing the letter T and saying t, t, t -t 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 over and over again. And how could that possibly be interesting? But what's really interesting about that perspective is that it's a very adult perspective. And when we actually look at kids and ask them, there's been some really fascinating research that finds that children actually are more motivated and more engaged in alphabet instruction and phonics instruction that's really explicit and systematic and focused on the skills themselves and not in the context of big stories or big pictures or fun graphics. But kids are actually motivated by this very basic seeming concept to most adults, but that's amazing to them. We're giving them this critical key to unlocking the world around them and all these letters and words that they see. And they actually find it really cool. So, for the first, first things for joy, is that we have to remember that kids think some things are cool that maybe adults don't realize that they think are cool. The second thing that's really critical to remember about making foundational skills cool and joyful is that just because we need to be explicit and systematic or telling kids exactly what we want them to learn and then giving them an an inroad to that and having them practice it in a way that makes logical sense, doesn't mean that it can't be fun. Most teachers, and in the book, I also include routines like this, know how to infuse games and excitement into activities like that to make sure that they still feel like they can be an engaging, motivating context while we're actually just practicing something, again, that seems very basic to adults.
0: Interesting. Now we have an audience that's not composed entirely of educators. So I'd like you to delve into the science of reading, a term we've heard in the news a lot. It's a hot topic. Why and why now?
1: Yeah, the science of reading is a huge topic and it's very hot. And if you've been following a lot of different media outlets or Twitter threads, you've probably seen it, even if you're not an educator. The first thing I'll say about the science of reading is that as a movement, it's absolutely critical. And I am so thrilled that we're at a moment where folks are taking recognition to this because at first and foremost, what it really is is a recognition that we do have decades and decades and decades of research on reading and how to teach kids to read that we aren't always using in schools and that we can use that research to inform our instruction to lead to better outcomes for children. Unfortunately, in this country, we haven't historically done a great job at teaching children how to read. And so we really need to lean into this research and lean into what we know about how words work in our brains, both on the recognition side, so those foundational skills, and on the comprehension side or understanding what texts mean, in order to make sure that all children can succeed. So to most researchers and and other folks, the science of reading is this huge breadth of things that really is composed of decades worth of studies and investigations and teacher practices that tell us how should we teach reading based on what the science actually says to make sure that all children are able to be excellent readers.
0: And you specify in the book That you don't take every single thing from the science of reading as Bible and that you have done your own extensive research and you take what you see as best practices. Is that a fair analysis?
1: Well, I think that the thing to always remember about buzzwords like the science of reading is that people take different interpretations to them. So some people take them to mean different things. So someone might have a definition for the science of reading that's extremely narrow and is only about, say, phonics. But actually, when we think about science and the research of reading, it's huge. It encompasses all aspects of learning to read. And so my approach is that of first, always looking at all of the research and trying to take that all into consideration, and second, of continuous learning. So recognizing that we're always going to be learning new things about how we can teach reading better. Reading is a deeply unnatural process. Our brains were not set up to do this. And it's incredible that we're at a place in human history where we do learn to read and we do learn to write. But it is a hard process that we're still learning a lot about how to do it better and what our brains are actually doing in order to both read words and comprehend them. So I'm excited to be in a space where we're going to be continually learning and where we will continually find better instructional techniques. To teach kids how to read, um, we might have something way better in ten years. That's something we couldn't even imagine right now.
0: Do we know why our brains haven't adapted to pick this up more naturally over time?
1: <laughs> I don't know that I'm the right person to answer that. We could ask a neuroscientist if they have any ideas. <laughs> but our brains are designed for oral language; they're not designed to be readers. So when we are training our brains to read, we do rewire a lot of the circuitry in our brain from that old brain that's just for oral language so it's a very cool process but i am not the right person to ask all the ins and outs about
0: okay well that's a very helpful start really fascinating stuff for educators who'd like to implement your reading suggestions where do you recommend they start
1: it really depends on your grade level and your students needs but the first stop Would be to start trying to ask yourself questions about if your purpose lines up with your teaching technique. So for example, you might be teaching an alphabet lesson and you might say, okay, my purpose today is that I want all of my students to know that the letter M spells the sound M. But then maybe when you're looking at your lesson plan and thinking about what you're going to say that day, you notice that all of the questions that you have laid out for your students and maybe the activities that you're doing with your students are actually all about Having kids name the letter and say, oh, that's an M, that's an M, but not really saying that spells M. So then you might realize, okay, here's a mismatch. There's a mismatch here between my purpose and my instructional techniques. And honestly, you can't reach that purpose unless your techniques match. So that happens more often than we might imagine because we have so many techniques and ideas and cute things floating around and curricula that we might have been seeing different things pop up for years and years, depending on how long our career has been. So we might have a whole lot of stuff that's in our classrooms that we don't even realize isn't actually aligning with our instructional purposes and goals. And if you don't know what those instructional purposes and goals are, research is a great place to lean in and to learn what those should be along a developmental trajectory to take children from pre-readers all the way to reading multisyllabic words. And in the book, this is again where I come in and I give instructional routine swaps that are directly related to instructional routines that you might already be using that don't necessarily match those purposes that we know from research we need to have. And so instead, I give you an alignment to routines that are aligned with the purpose that you need to have for students to become readers.
0: You offer a great guidebook. Still, I found myself returning to the glossary to remember the difference between phonological awareness and phonemic awareness. I'm wondering what advice do you have for parents and caregivers who are hoping to help their children practice reading at home?
1: The number one piece of advice is, as always, read at home. Read to your children, ask your children to join you in reading and have fun with it. And especially when you're able, ask your children to pick out the books that they want to read either to you or listen to you read so that you can help them develop That excitement around all the different topics that we can read about so that they're motivated to become readers. The second thing is is pretty simple as well. When you're reading to a child, just go ahead and point to all the words as you go so that your child will be focused on noticing hey, these words are really important. These letters represent something. And if you want, call in your child to practice some words with you. And again, sounding out through all of those sounds is a critical piece of this. But really the number one thing to do at home is to read and to experience some joy around it as well. And what about
0: for parents and caregivers for whom English might not be their first language or they may not even speak English? How can we help them?
1: You should absolutely read to your child in your home language and you should feel very confident that those skills are transferable into English. You should not try to... Learn English for the sole purpose of teaching your child to read English. If you want to go down that path, that's awesome. And I applaud your multilingualism. But if you are a Spanish speaking home and you read in Spanish as well, read those Spanish books with your child. Support your child in learning how to read in Spanish. All of those skills are transferable to English and will support their English language journey that they're taking in school as well.
0: That's tremendously helpful. Your book doesn't delve into the use of culturally responsive texts, but you note how important they are in instruction. Can you explain why that is?
1: Yes. So even at this very basic stage of reading where we're talking about letters and words and phonics, mostly in isolation, it's so critical that teachers take a stance of cultural responsiveness to their classroom. And I talk a little bit about how that is not antithetical to this structured work that we need to be doing in phonics and in foundational skills instruction, but actually that those two philosophies can operate in concert when a teacher has been given the time and the space to learn how to do both and to bring those together in the classroom. This is really important because it supports children and being able to be their best selves and bring their whole self into our classroom. We also know from research that children actually do succeed better in texts that reflect their background knowledge. So if we're giving children their very early texts and we're trying to say, Oh my goodness, you're a reader now. You're learning how to read even these most basic words. If we're able to give them culturally responsive texts that reflect their background, they're more likely to succeed in those texts and experience those early joyful, motivating moments of becoming a reader that they need to fuel them through all of the challenges associated with learning how to read.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background in reading and education.
1: I'd love to. I started off my career as a kindergarten and first grade teacher, and I just had the most fun teaching my little ones how to read and write. It's just an utterly joyful experience to watch children go from that early kindergarten stage of figuring out what letters are to being able to read whole books. And I know that other teachers share in my joy of of those moments. But even among all that joy, there were always some head scratchers. I always had some students that I couldn't quite figure out how to support their needs based on the curriculum that I had on hand and the resources that I knew of. There were kids who would do some weird things in books that I just didn't really understand. Like they would look at a word and instead of saying the whole word, they would just say individual sounds and never put those sounds back together to make a whole word. And then just move on, like as though there was no issue. And other sort of puzzling things like that. I had a a number of students, for example, who really excelled in phonics or excelled in questions that I asked them about books I read to them, but then had a lot of trouble in their own books. So when I went to graduate school, I went to the University of Michigan, where I got my PhD in literacy, language, and culture at our School of Education, studying under Nell Duke. I realized that the the challenges that I was having were very widespread and that there were a lot of teachers and districts across the country who had had the same puzzling moments that I did and also sometimes didn't have other resources to figure out what was going on because there has been a lot of different ways and misconceptions about how we teach kids to read words and the actual research about how we teach kids how to read words from that very early stage around kindergarten through second grade. Um, wasn't always getting to teachers and it wasn't always getting to curriculum creators either. So this really drove a passion for me of trying to make sure that we can bridge this practice research gap that we have between all these things that we find out that are so exciting and cool in research about how to better support young readers to getting that information actually into classrooms and into teachers' hands so that they can do something about it.
0: In your journey as a reader and as a teacher of reading, what has surprised you the most?
1: That's a great question. I think what's the, well, back to my kind of origin story. One of the things that really surprised me was how many things in, were known in research that I had no idea about as a teacher. Some things that literally I'd never even heard the word before. So that was pretty surprising to me because reading feels a little bit mysterious and it feels a little bit magical. Um, when you don't necessarily know all the research behind it because it can feel like a kid kind of spontaneously starts doing things. But once we know the research, it's not quite so magical for the adults, which might feel like a little bit of a letdown, but is actually so empowering and exciting to be able to say, okay, I can be extraordinarily strategic as a teacher and I can create these moments on purpose. And then the magic can happen for the kid. So instead of waiting for magic for myself to see a light bulb turn on, I can create a situation where I know for a fact the light bulb is going to turn on because I'm using all these research-based methods to get a child's reading light bulb on.
0: What's next for you now that you've written Reading Above the Fray, you're still delving into the science of reading. What do you see for educators like you going forward? How are you building on the current knowledge?
1: Yes. So like I said, there's still so much to learn and so much to practice and apply together. A lot of my work right now is continuing to work with folks across the spectrum of reading and instruction and research and publishing to try to stop allowing there to be so many gaps between those spaces and to really pull together folks across different spaces to say, what have we learned in practice that we need to be attentive to in research? What do we know from research that's never showing up in these published curricula? And how can we bridge those gaps so that there is less of a divide between what we have learned in research and what we are doing in classrooms right now? And a lot of that has to do with extending the knowledge of the science of reading into classrooms. It has to do with ensuring that we all think deeply about and know what it means to differentiate or to use high-quality assessments. And it also means that we're attentive to this crossing over between foundational skills and comprehension, and that we're not attending only to one or the other, but to both as we support children into developing into full, proficient, confident readers.
0: That's great. This has been so very helpful, Dr. Lindsay. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, the last thing I would add is just that, again, this is really an exciting time to be in a space where you get to learn so much more about how reading works, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a grandma or a grandpa who's curious about how they can best support the children in their lives. And we have so much more access to this information than we did even six or 10 years ago in practice. And some of this has existed in research for 50 years. So, it's exciting that we're seeing so much more engagement in this, but to continue to be a learner and continue to be a skeptic. A healthy skeptic is somebody who can look at all of the information coming out and say, hmm, that doesn't actually jive with all these other things that I learned. Let me find out a little bit more and find out if that's really a research based practice or if that's just kind of a cool idea that I should come back to later and see if it's become a research based practice. Because there's a lot out there. And in order to learn better and do better, we do need to bring that kind of healthy skepticism to learning as well. Fantastic.
0: Healthy skepticism. No, this is really terrific. Thank you so very much again for joining me today.
1: Great, thank you.
0: My great thanks again to Dr. Julia B. Lindsay for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Reading Above the Fray, and the science of reading, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.